Good morning, Gold Avenue Church family and friends. This is Pastor Jalisa, um, and I'm so grateful for the gift of being together in God's Word, even though we're not yet together in person. Whether you've been listening along to our preaching or whether you've just joined us, I thought it could be helpful to give us a brief summary of where we've been and where we're headed with our sermons. As a, as a body, as a collective group, God has had us on a journey. And the sermons that have been preached have both reflected that journey and also prophetically sort of paved a way for that journey. Just a couple short months ago, and before stay-at-home orders were issued, we preached through the book of Haggai. And through Haggai, the Lord told us that in a little while he would shake the whole earth and that only that which was built for him and for his kingdom would stand. God invited us and called us to give careful thought to the lives that we were building. And then COVID hit and the world started shaking. And in many ways, it feels like it hasn't yet stopped shaking. After Haggai and following the Easter series, we started a sermon series in response to God's words to us in Haggai. We've been preaching through Ezra and we'll go on to Nehemiah as we walk through the story of God's chosen people rebuilding the promised land and the temple and their identity and relationship with God following years of exile. And so as we continue today in Ezra 9 and 10, friends, we're learning about building. We're learning about building lives that reflect the kingdom of God. Together, we're building lives that bring about the revival that our world so desperately needs. And so here we are in Ezra chapter 9. And it's a bit long. We're finishing out the book of Ezra. So I'm going to read chapter 9 up until verse 17 of Ezra chapter 10. And there's a lot of names in here, so (laughs) it should be fun. But the word of the Lord is so good. So Ezra 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, Ezra, and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. 
I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you. Because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant, and here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jahiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up, put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. 
Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoahan, son of Eliashib. When he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion. And because of the rain, then Ezra, the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here and it's the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman Come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikva, supported by Meshalem and Shabetai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra, the priest, selected men who were family heads one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the course of the last couple months or so, I've had a few opportunities to gather with small groups of people, some family, some friends, and even some random people in line at the store who are hungry for some social interaction, like we all probably are. Inevitably, in these casual conversations, the topic has slowly shifted from, you know, hello, how are you, and weather reports, and stories about children, to recaps of the evening news and personal convictions. Conversation flows into hot-button issues like COVID-19, masks, rules around gatherings, systemic racism, police reform, political policies, and issues related to the LGBTQ community. There's no shortage of weighty things to chat about these days. And, you know, it almost seems to happen that people wade into these heavy conversations sort of slowly, gently, graciously testing the waters. 
But as soon as the water seems to be a safe temperature, as soon as people find some agreement in the room, they're all in, splashing and cannonballing whoever is within earshot with their thoughts, opinions, and emotions. Not always, but often I've found myself sort of hanging back, holding my tongue, chasing down rabbit trails in my mind of what I could say or should say, what might be helpful, what might be truthful. And the thing that keeps me quiet is that the reality is that in many of these moments, I simply don't know what to say. I'm not sure what would be helpful, truthful, or impactful, and I don't know what will be heard. In a world where statistics can be spun, where the microphone often belongs to the highest bidder, and where nearly every reporter seems to have a bent of some sort, I often feel like I don't know what the truth is on so many fronts, and it doesn't feel like anybody really knows the best way forward. If I think about it, there's a deeper question at play here. I'm not entirely sure what it looks like to be one of God's chosen children, an ambassador of his holy kingdom, in these moments and within some of these conversations. I'm not always sure where my own biases lie, where I've hidden my own sinful attitudes even from myself. In this world and during these times, it can be so hard to know what it means to be God's, to be salt and light to a dying world living in darkness, and to represent God and his kingdom to this world. What does it really look like to be set apart for God in this broken world in 2020? It's a question we're asking, but it's a question literally as old as Adam and Eve. And it's the question that the exiles were wrestling with in Ezra 9 and 10 and really the whole book. Literally for the the last several hundred years, things have not gone well for God's people. Before they'd been taken into exile and when they'd still had ownership of their promised land, more sin and evil had sat on the thrones of Israel and Judah than had holiness and righteousness. Throughout their history, foreign peoples and their pagan practices and religions had infiltrated the people. And even wise kings like Solomon had bent his knee to the idols of his foreign wives. And it was for the sins of not being set apart for God that the people had been hauled away into exile. And now, years later, by his astounding grace and provision, God's people had their feet once again planted in their promised land. But this time... What did it look like to stand in it, to be set apart as God had called them all those years ago? God had brought them back in waves that had been powered and funded by Persian kings. He'd raised up leaders like Joshua and Zerubbabel, and then God had raised up the prophet Ezra to take on the work of calling God's people back to God. Ezra was to interpret the law, to teach the people again who their God was, to teach them who God had made them to be, and to teach them what it was to be God's, to be his representation on earth for the sake of the earth. 
As we learned last week, Ezra had even taken on the work of calling the Levites back to their holy posts. Remember, as far back as Aaron, the brother of Moses, the Levites were to be those who lived the word of God, who discipled the whole nation into God's plans and purposes. In order for Israel to be Israel, the Levites needed to be Levites, and Ezra had seen to it that this took place. And after all this, Ezra 9 starts off in a really great place. The Levites are doing Levite things. They'd offered burnt offerings to the Lord as a recompense for the sin of God's people. The building of the temple was being personally funded by Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Things are smooth sailing. And then Ezra gets some really bad news. The people still don't get it. They still don't seem to grasp the holiness of their God. They fail to feel the gravity of what he saved them from, and they struggle to grasp the immensity of who he's made them to be. And because of it, the people, along with their leaders and their officials and even the Levites themselves, have committed the same sins of their forefathers. In their attempts to establish themselves in the land, they've married foreign women and have yoked or covenanted themselves with things that are not of the Lord. They failed to be holy, and they failed to give careful thought to the lives that they were building. It's easy to be hard on the exiles. As I was reading through this text, I just kept thinking, like, come on, people. Why don't you know better yet? You're only a few generations behind leaders like David and Solomon and King Josiah who had brought complete revolution. You've got prophets like Ezra and Malachi at the same time speaking to your very faces. Why is this so hard? But really, these people aren't so very different from you and I. As we said earlier, for hundreds of years, the people's dedication to God had waxed and waned along with their leaders. They've just come out of years of wars and tremendous trauma and hardship and exile. And like us, they too intimately feel the effects of the fall of man. One such effect is mankind's uncanny ability and willingness to justify or avoid knowledge Of our own sins. Can't you just hear the excuses? But Ezra, we needed to get married so that I could trade with her family. And it's brought incredible favor to our household. But Ezra, we needed to get married in order to secure my land. Doesn't God want me to prosper in this land? But Ezra, we married because we love each other. God believes in love. But Ezra, I married her because her family is really great. They worship those other gods, but really they're not so bad. Humans are really good at sewing fig leaves together and hiding behind bushes, aren't we? There are big and small ways in which we yoke ourselves to And come into agreement with things that are not of the Lord. Sometimes we know it. 
Sometimes we've been deceived. And sometimes we've deceived ourselves. It's part of human nature. What seemingly small sins have we made excuses for? What specks have we swept under the rug? What things have we done or said in order to meet our own needs or secure our own position? What things have we done or said in order to help us fit in with our friends and our neighbors? What movements, worldviews, or organizations have we aligned ourselves with that may not be entirely aligned with the word of God? What views or attitudes have we taken on that do not represent the character of God or who he's called us to be? Friends, our enemy doesn't play fair. And he can twist even our best intentions into alignment or agreement with things that are not of the Lord like he did with the exiles. But our God, he's never surprised. He was prepared for this moment in time. The news of Israel's sin comes to Ezra, and God begins to reveal to Ezra his path for redemption. And the first step is repentance. It's almost bizarre. Even though Ezra himself did not marry a foreign woman, even though the sin on the altar is not his own, out of love for God and out of love for God's people, Ezra wades into the gap. He allows his own heart to feel the weight of the broken covenant between God and his people. Ezra sobs and he wails and he tears his clothes and he pulls out his hair. He drops to his knees and he smashes his face into the dirt before the holy God of heaven in guilt and in profound humility. This is what that word self-abasement means. I'm too ashamed to look at you, God, Ezra says. He goes on to tell the story of God and his people, how God had set them apart and commanded them to be holy, but how God's people had repeatedly been unfaithful. After all our sin and all the consequences of them, Ezra says in verse 8, for a brief moment you've given us a firm place in your sanctuary. Literally a tent peg in the holiness of God. God has given light to our eyes, Ezra says. He saved us and caused us to shine. And yet, God, we've done exactly what you told us not to do. We've lost sight of the big picture and have fallen into sin. And now not one of us can stand in your presence. 
the repentance of one leader lays the kindling for the fires of revival of the whole nation. As Ezra pours himself out for the sins of the people, a large crowd begins to gather. They watch. They listen. They allow their hearts to be softened and to feel the burden that Ezra bears. And soon, they too drop to their knees in repentance and the crowd begins to weep bitterly. And then a man named Shechaniah stands up and he lights the fires of revival. There's still hope, Shechaniah proclaims. Let us make a covenant before God to once again be holy. Rise up, he says to Ezra. We are behind you. Let's make this right. It's amazing how quickly things escalate after Shechaniah speaks. Ezra rises up. He chooses leaders to help him. He maintains a posture of repentance through fasting and mourning. And he issues a proclamation that every person must assemble in Jerusalem within three days. And Ezra isn't messing around. If a person doesn't show up, he forfeits his land and position in the group. And what happens next is even more astounding. Everyone gathers as Ezra had commanded, even though it's the rainy season where people don't want to move. He stands up in front of the crowd and he reads the charges against them and he calls them to separate themselves from their very wives and children that would defile them. And literally, the whole crowd comes into agreement with the word of God given through Ezra. And in one voice, they bellow back, you are right. We must do as you say. What follows are a few months of negotiations, followed by years of building back the temple and the promised land. Generations of people who enjoyed the favor of the Lord as they walked in his ways. The repentance of the people, their willingness to detach from all that which, all that was not of God, and their agreement with God and his word, launched revival. Friends, I don't know about you, but I look around and I listen to the news and I hear the stories and I feel and see people's pain and I think we need a revival. We need God's justice. We need his healing. We need his peace. And my goodness, do we need his joy? We need to rise up as Ezra did and to be holy as God is holy. But are we willing to not just talk about sin or read about sin or avoid sin, but to join Ezra with our faces in the dirt, our hearts heavy with the burdens of ourselves and of the world, weeping in the gap of repentance for our own sins and the sins of God's people who are struggling to know what it is to be his today? Are we willing to separate ourselves from any agreement with anything that is not in alignment with God? 
Even the things that seem not so bad. The things that seem to do some good. The things that tug at our hearts and the things that we hold dear. Are we willing to say with the exiles, God, you're right. We must do all that you say. The reality that is kind of sad of this particular story is that God's people continued to fail. They were not successful at being salt and light to the nations. And so God, who is never surprised, hatched a plan for the redemption of the world. He sent his only son, Jesus, to bear the full weight of all our sins on the cross, to die, to be raised to life and to send his spirit, the very presence of God to make his home and pour out his power within and among us, a new covenant in his blood and our living hope. Jesus died so that when we repent of our sins and the sins of God's people, we have assurance that those sins have been paid for and that we are forgiven. Jesus was resurrected so that we can be seated with him at the right hand of God himself, who sits enthroned over all the earth in her chaos. Jesus gave us his spirit so that we can live into this identity in ways that the exiles couldn't. This calling to be his sons and his daughters who birth revival into this broken world. We don't have to be confused or led astray. This is who we are. We are God's children. We are ambassadors of his glorious kingdom breaking into the world around us. And friends, it all starts with repentance with complete agreement with God and with his word. Before we close, I want to come back to those questions that were posed earlier because I think they're important for all of us. And I want to invite you to take note of them. Maybe write them down. And at some point, take some time to sit with them and to sit with the Lord. To allow his spirit to search your heart, to convict you, to forgive you, and to give you hope. And so here they are. What things have we done or said in order to meet our own needs? What things have we done or said in order to help us fit in? with our friends and neighbors? What movements, worldviews, or organizations have we aligned ourselves with that may not be entirely aligned with the word of God? What views or attitudes have we taken on that do not represent the character of God or who he's made us to be. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who lay the kindling of revival 
through our repentance. Let us be those who stand in the gap for the world. Let us be those who light the fires of revival with unshakable hope in our risen and reigning Lord who is faithful to forgive and who will bring about the fullness of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your unshakable love for us and for this world. Thank you for your word that tells us who you are, that shows us who we are, and that shows us what your plans for us are. God, I thank you that you love us enough to call us up into your righteousness and your holiness. God, I thank you that you love the world enough to call us up into righteousness, that they might walk the way of life. Lord, as we've listened to this word from you, I pray that if we don't know your word, if we don't know your character and your righteousness or who you made us to be, God, would you make us hungry? Make us hunger for your word and hunger after your ways. God, if we've been deceived, if we've even deceived ourselves, Lord, would you open our eyes and soften our hearts? Would you convict us, humble us, and draw us into repentance? And Lord, if we struggle to know your love and your forgiveness, would you make it clear? And Lord, if we need hope for our role and our purpose in this world, Lord, would you make that clear? And would you call each one of us to rise up? God, help us to be those who usher in your revival on the earth. Help us to be those who embody, proclaim, and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.